Hi, welcome to the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. For months, we take time to prepare and educate ourselves on this new adventure of motherhood. But as we all know, once the baby is born, we're still left with so many questions and need all the help we can get. Women really should have a sense of empowerment as they begin to experience these life-changing moments. And no one mother has it all figured out. However, the more informed we are, the better decisions we can make that will positively affect us and our family. And that's what this podcast is about. Sharing honest, raw, and real conversations about motherhood, life, and all of the crazy, messy, beautiful in-betweens to hopefully educate, empower, and support the next mother on her motherhood journey. So sit back and enjoy. As a busy mom, I need style, simplicity, and convenience when it comes to my wardrobe. And I am so glad that I learned about Modern Mom Style Box. It's been a game changer for me. It's a monthly clothing rental subscription service where you stock your virtual closet and receive a box of cute styles that you've selected. You can try them on and either hang on to them for the month, you can purchase them at a reasonable price, or you can just return them in a prepaid shipping label when you're done. And you can receive multiple boxes with your month's subscription. Sizes go up to 4X and they have popular brands like Ann Taylor, Banana Republic, French Connection, and more. I want you to try it yourself for free for one month. So head on over to www.modernmomstyle.com to start your free trial today and tell them that Nicole from Mamas Know Best sent you. Hello and welcome to the Mamas Know Best. We got something to say podcast. I am on with a very special guest, Dr. Carlene Crevacore who is a Haitian-American board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist, a wife and a mother of five adult children. She was raised in New York and attended St. John's University as an undergraduate, earning a bachelor's degree in chemistry. She did her medical school and residency training at SUNY Down State. After several years of medical service in New York and Pennsylvania, Carlene gave up her career to raise and homeschool her five African-American children. Her homeschool journey is told in her new memoir, Pressure Makes Diamonds, From Homeschooling to the Ivy League, A Parenting Story. She has volunteered on education boards such as WPSU, a local public radio, and NAAHP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Haitian Professionals, and has sponsored many public health programs. Doctor has recently won her school board election race, making her the first Black person in her school district to do so. Her mission is to involve parents, especially minority ones, in promoting quality education for their children. I love it. It's such a pleasure. I am so happy to have you on. Education is key. I think it's fundamental, uh, especially reaching the youth, especially reaching minority children, low-income families. With that wonderful bio that I just read aloud. Why don't you discuss a little bit more about who you are, a bit more in depth, anything you want to share, and then I want to jump into your journey into becoming an OBGYN and how we transitioned into homeschooling and your passion for education. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this platform that you're giving me because I too believe in education and I quit my job over it because it is so important to me. So, and when we say education, we have education all around us. You could learn from so many different issues that are going on throughout the world, throughout the country, throughout even your community. All of these things are really teaching moments. And because they are happening in real time, I think kids get to understand them on a better level than just reading textbook because it is around them. But going back to your previous questions about talking about myself, (laughs) I left Haiti when I was two 
but I came to this country when I was five and I'm thinking like, where the heck did you go? Well, my father, he was an intellect. He was a mathematician and a lawyer in Haiti. And he got a lot of scholarships to go to different countries. And Haiti was starting at that time to be a turbulent area, especially with the the rise of Duvalier. So a lot of, you know, we call that brain drain, a lot of the intellect that could have hopefully helped the country left. So we're not happy about that, but they had to protect their family. And it's easy to say, stay and fight. But when you have families, you have little ones that depend on you, you have no choice. So around that time, he got a lot of different scholarships. So at one point, so my little brother was too little to go with us. And my older siblings, because I'm I'm one of six, and my older siblings were already in school. I wasn't. I was only two, and I traveled with my parents. So we lived in Congo for a year. We lived in France for a year. We traveled to Italy. We were in Michigan, and then eventually we ended up in Brooklyn, New York. And I guess my dad decided this is where he wants to raise his family. And so my siblings came in one after the other. And, you know, with immigrant family, you don't all leave at the same time because the father, the head of the household first comes and establish a place for their kids, you know, for the family. And then the whole family comes. And so my grandmother, my mom's mother also came with us later on and she really helped to raise us. So that's the immigrant story. And because my father was an intellect, you know, we really valued education. We weren't the type that we had to show our report cards or anything like that, or the parents, they didn't come to teachers meeting because that was not part of our culture. Our culture was one that you trust the teachers to educate your children. And if they have any questions then they'll come to you. But other than that, if there's no questions, there's no reason to go to parent teachers. And we believe that in the household, that's the parent's job. The manners, the everything else that you learn outside of school, that's what the parents do. So they saw their job as two different things from teaching. Although I have to say that the Haitian Revolution, Haitian culture, even French, my dad made sure that we learned these things. And during the summer, he would be the one because he knew that we didn't get that at school. So they did do some education because they did know that we were not getting it. So... All my brothers and sisters went on to higher degrees in medicine and engineering and education because we just, we weren't punished if we got like an F, but we just knew we wouldn't get an F. You know, we just knew that it wasn't something that they would like. I think it's just something that was ingrained. It sounds like, exactly. you know, your father was studious and it was just almost like second nature, right? It just exactly. was like, there was no doubt you were going to college because it's just what you knew. It's what you saw around you. May I ask what your mother did? See, my mom never went to college. My mom worked mm-hmm. as a nurse's aide when she first came to this country and learning the English language was something that they also had to do. My parents spoke, especially my dad, spoke fluent Spanish because of the Dominican Republic that neighbored us. But my mom, at one point, she wanted to start nursing school in Haiti, but she never, she started like one week and then they left. So she never completed mm-hmm. that. So she started as a nurse's aide and she stayed there. You know, she worked for our a Haitian parish and that's what eventually the job that she loved the most and she ended up staying there but she worked as a bank teller she did a lot of odd jobs while my father was real the breadwinner 
there were six children. So she was also taking care of home and making sure that exactly. ran smoothly. Yeah. I think there's something to say about that, which I know is going to tie into your journey. But before we go into homeschooling your book and, and really hitting onto some education points, because this is a motherhood podcast. My listeners are mothers, career women, but I love sharing stories. And I think it is important to share where someone came from and their trajectory into what they currently do. So why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about your journey to becoming an OBGYN, why that field and what that was like on a high level, then we'll go into, you know, why you changed and decided to homeschool your your children. Okay, well, to be honest with you, I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. My father was a lawyer. And he always said that I would make a good lawyer because I like argue with him a lot, you know, so I just assume I would be a lawyer until I went to school and I love science. And one of my teachers told me you would be a great doctor. And these are the things that teachers really have impact on you. They have no idea how you could change their life. So I didn't realize, okay, doctor, you know, I never put that in my head. Then this thing that when I went to interviews for medical interviews, they asked me why, you know, do I want to do OB in particular? And the honest truth was because we never talked about these things about sexual reproduction and everything in my household. Even when I had my period for the first time, I learned about all these things in the library. I had to go on the school bus it wasn't we didn't have computers that you could just type in menstrual cycle you had to do the dewey decimal system and figure out where it was in the library exactly (laughs) and the more i found out about what my body was able to do i was impressed the whole ovulation cycle the whole so then i decided that yes i am going to be a doctor i am going to be an OBGYN. even before i actually knew everything they did but i just love the fact that taking at the, I could have a baby, how it, how that whole process works, you know, because unfortunately, or fortunately for me, that wasn't something that was discussed. All I was told was when I had my menstrual cycle for the first time, my dad told me, make sure you keep your legs closed. That was it. So I definitely grew up in a really sexist household, but, but like I said, for me, it worked because of the fact that I learned these things on my own and I thought it was so fascinating. Sure. I may ask, how was that with your own children? Did you make it, was it something that was discussed of making it more open to say, this is what happens and women get a menstrual cycle and men have penises, women have vaginas and it's X, Y, Z, and this is what the human body was like. Did you have more of those open conversations with your children? I did. And it started on very early and I gave them information that they were able to absorb for their age because we went to zoos and we also saw videos of childbirth in animals. And my son was like, did they just poop that that baby out? And I said, sweetheart, no, we have to talk about babies. And so, yes, I was definitely um, willing to share a lot of these information with my kids. And I think that's so important. I think being transparent, which, you know, is another aspect to your point earlier when you said, and not just education on a a studious level textbook, but in life in general of being transparent with children to stuff that they can understand. And I mean, in my opinion, and listen, I'm just a mom of one, my son is four. So I have so much to learn with, with parenthood, but and how my parents raised me. And one of the things is being open, you know, my father telling us certain things as we got older and trying to be as open. He's also from New York. And I think it's a different mindset of just being real with our children. When you're not, they can kind of spot the BS. Exactly. And then 
go to someone else to get the information, which it can be completely the opposite from what the truth is or from what you want them to know. So I, that's kind of the way we're, we're hoping to raise our son is what I'm saying. They, they sense it. They sense when you're not being honest with them. And even if I don't know, the first time they asked me a question, I didn't know. I said, I don't know. Let's go look it up. And they were like, mom, you don't know? Yes, I don't know. And I also opened up the door for them to say, hey, wait a minute, I could find this information out for myself. And so they started, you know, looking at other things and started even debating me on some things, which I think is very natural. I think it's something that should happen because, yeah, I will not always have the answer for you. But once they catch you in a lie and a purposeful lie, if it was a mistake, you say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. When did you just come out? That's OK. That's acceptable. But if they catch you in a lie, then it is hard for you to redeem yourself in the eyes of your children. It goes to everyone, really. When your husband, your spouse is lied to you, then you don't know if you should ever believe them again. And so I never wanted to be in that kind of scenario, even the tough questions. And I have a few of the tough questions in my book, and I don't want to give it away, that we really had to talk about. It was a turning point in our life, but I felt that it was important to be honest with them. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's key. And I think debating is very big. I also, I come from the generation, you know, you don't ask too many questions. And so to a certain degree, my parents were very open and progressive with a lot of things in that way. But there were still, you know, if I talked back or had an extra opinion, my mom might have been more like, whoa, whoa, you know, and I'm like, but I'm just voicing my opinion, you know, I should be allowed to do that. And now that I have my son who's four going on like 15, it's so spectacular. Could be, you know, a lot of patience to understand, but he, he challenges us now to stop and think. And I'm like, wow, I can't really, you know, he's right. And we'll get into that. So you're an OBGYN and I'm sure the, it's a, it's a process and all of that and medical school. And I love the journey of into that and saying, okay, well, look what my, my body can do and what women can do and learning all about reproductive health. What was that time period like from when you're an OBGYN and then you have your children to where you decide, you know what, I think I want to homeschool my children. What was that turning point for you? The turning point was when my husband and I, who's a doctor also, he's an anesthesiologist. We met over a difficult case that we were both involved with that we saved mommy and baby. And then we went out for drinks and the rest was history. Oh my God, that's (laughs) awesome. Yes. (laughs) So that was really wonderful. So we were both in New York training. He wasn't attending already. And I was the chief resident. So he was, he's three years older than me. And then once we decided to leave New York and go to Pennsylvania, we were two young people traveling the world and seeing where we would want to end up. Well, five years later, five kids later, we're still in Pennsylvania. (laughs) We're in central Pennsylvania now, and we have no family. And we've always wanted to raise our kids around family. But the pay was great. And finding anesthesia job at one point was not that great. So we wanted to eventually end up in Maryland because we both had family there, but we couldn't. So here we are now. Our kids are starting preschool and kindergarten. And our kids are little geniuses, especially Danielle, my oldest, who taught herself how to read at two years old. People say, oh, you're kidding me. Really, too? Yeah. I was so shocked that, you know, these baby books, the milestones. And I wrote, Danielle is reading, you know, two years old, like exclamation point. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, she was really advanced because she was our only child at the time. And we always spoke with her. We always read with her. And so telling the school district, telling the principal, telling whoever, the superintendent, 
you know, my daughter is really smart. Is there anything you could do to challenge her? Because she doesn't want to go to school anymore. She's bored. And she actually told us this, mom, I don't want to go to school. I'm bored. I want to stay home and read with the twins. And then my other son, who's Mikey, who's a male, learned so much different from Danielle did. He liked to walk around and he started off at Montessori where you were in fixed to a chair. Once he started kindergarten, because Montessori only went up to kindergarten, so I transferred him out to my daughter's school, which was a Catholic school at the time. And he started saying he doesn't want to go to school anymore. He hates it. He stuck to a chair. And studies have shown that little boys, especially little black boys, they like walking around. You can't just have them sit in a chair. And then the last straw was when my son, my middle son, Nicholas, who was around three years old or two years old at the time, he got injured by the babysitter and he got a black eye and we were so afraid. That was around the same time that the shaken baby syndrome and that it was just so frightening. And a couple of times there were always emergencies where our schedule conflicted. My husband and mine, we were on call and then we had to get babysitters. Sometimes they wouldn't show up, call my mom, mom, please, I need you. Come from Florida, I'll pay your one-way ticket. That happened. And when Nicholas got hurt, my husband says, Carlene, something has to care. One of us has to quit their job. You know, we can't go on like this. And the one of us turned out to be me, you know. And I, I always tell people that was really smart of him because I can't say down the road, you made me quit my job. You know, it was your fault. You know, he didn't. He said, one of us, we all knew it would be me, but I did volunteer because I wanted the large family because I come from a large family and my siblings are my best friends. They're my sort of support. So because of that, I quit my job and that's how I started homeschooling my kids. And I always thought at some point I would go back. This is temporary. I'll do this till the middle school or so, and then I'll go back. Then I got sick and that was the other part of my journey. That life throws you curveball and you just swing at it the best you can. And so that's what I did. So that was how my journey of homeschooling started. And to be honest with you, when I looked at different sections of my life, this was not planned. And I always believe in planning life, <laughs> you know, it was definitely one of the best parts of my life. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. My twins are 22. They're the youngest, a boy, girl, twin. And my oldest just turned 27. Michael, who's the second oldest boy, just turned 26. And Nicholas, he's 23. Wow. So they were, they were so close in age. So as you're dealing with the, the twin babies, right, that they were the youngest, what your oldest is, I'm sorry, how old is your oldest? 27. So at one point I had five under five. Basically, that's where I'm trying to get to. Okay. So that, yeah. And you have no help. Let me tell you, I am thankful you know, we have my parents down the street, my mother-in-law. We just have one. And I am so thankful because I really don't know. I mean, you figure it out, right? You, f you do figure it out. But more so than anything, my husband comes, his background is Jamaican and Guyanese. I'm Puerto Rican and Italian. So we both have big families. But him, he has like a really big family. You know, and he's like, my grandparents helped raise me also from Brooklyn. You know, he's like, that's just what it was. My mother worked in the city. He would go back and forth. And I, I say all this to say, I can imagine five under five and not having that and being too professionals that have very demanding careers, exactly. you know, that's wow. I salute you with that because 
you know, not only for you to give birth and have all that, and then trying to juggle these things. Wow. And, you know, I know you say it all. And that was like 20 something years ago. But I'm sure at the time, you know, you and your husband are like, what are we going to do? And that's good that he had the inkling to say that or, you know, to say, okay, something has to give because I'm sure at some point, something would have exploded, right? Something would have. So now you're homeschooling. Never, never have done this before, right? What was that like, especially 20 something years ago? Because this is my or like 80th conversation now. And I think I've spoken to two or three homeschooling moms and in various different ways, which I love, right? And different ways that they became homeschooling and, you know, all of that. But it's current from, you know, 20 something years ago. What was that like for you? Did you have the resources? Talk a little bit about that. Okay, that was hard for me when I first started because of the fact that there weren't a lot of resources as they are now. But they did have a homeschooling community and I I was the only Black person in that homeschooling community because this was something that Black people didn't really do. So reaching out to other Black people was not possible. But the homeschool community that I was involved in, I, I got a lot of information, a lot of books that they use, you know, and even the internet was relatively new. So that was something that I was starting to help to navigate. And so by the time the twins were being homeschooled, I knew which textbooks I liked. I knew which ones we've tried, which ones didn't work. But when we did it 20 years ago, even my family, when I told them, guys, I'm quitting my job, they were not very supportive. They said, Colleen, you work so hard, you know, and my mom, I felt like my mom lived through us because she never accomplished being a nurse. She never did that. So she was like, are you sure this is what you want to do? I said, mom, I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. Nick was hurt. So I could feel their disappointment. I heard it. But at the same time, they knew that I had to do what I had to do. And now, of course, they're like, oh, my God, we're so happy you homeschool and everything else. Everything turned out well. I, I knew you could do it, you know, I, you know, these kinds of stuff. But it was difficult. It was difficult, but it was also fun and challenging. When you start something new, your success, I think, counts on how you view your role, how you could envision the end product, how excited you are about it. So when I told my kids, kids, mom's going to quit her job and she's going to homeschool you. They were so happy. Yes, mom was so happy. And I can't blame the teachers. I can't blame the school. Everything is going to be me. And that was terrifying. But the, the faith that my kids had in me, the happiness they felt gave me the confidence to say, I could do this. I taught them a lot of other stuff. Why can't I do this? And so I went in it believing that I could, believing in myself, thinking of new things we're going to do, new avenues, and just making it fun. And it was fun. I wasn't the typical unschooling because I believe in structure. I've always had structure. I think kids need structure, but there is a different kind of homeschooling that they call unschooling. And my opposition to that is that there's so many things out there that could distract kids that I feel like they need structure. But I wasn't totally a nine to five person either. My time was undefined. I worked with them instead of to them. We worked together. I told them, okay, you guys, do you want to do chemistry or biology or physics? I gave them a choice of the science we would do. They had an input in their education, especially when they got older. And then each one of them had a daily work. That's what we call it. We didn't call it homework because we were already home. So we call it daily work, our daily work. 
And so I wrote what they had to do for the day, the science, the math, the literature, they could do it in any order that they wanted to and their music. They, but they had to finish it by the end of the day. And then we would go over it. I would be there. So at night or four o'clock in the morning, that's how early my day started. I would check their work. Those that they got wrong, we go over it together with different kids. Some kids, I combined their science work together because they were old enough to do that. The others, I worked separately in their math with them. So I was five kids and I was like dispensing myself throughout different, like felt like I was cloning myself, but, but it worked because Mikey wishes in the book, I call her my creative child, my piano, my musical child. He would start his day with music. He would play his piano piece, does his piano homework before he started his math work. It calmed him. It was so beautiful for him. Whereas Joey started his thing with math. He was my analytical child and I give each of these kids a name and then at the end, then you'll see why. And then, and they live up to their names because that was what defined them. And so they did their work in any order that they wanted to, which was fine with me, but it had to be done. Yeah. And I, you know, goes to your point when you said your son, and I think you said your middle son who he didn't want to be bound to a chair all day and things like that. And it, it's interesting because now a lot more schools are actually getting progressive and not necessarily with the unschooling, but like my, my son goes to a preschool. My son is very smart. He's very analytical. He likes to build things. So, I mean, he's been doing puzzles since he's like probably younger than two and just very analytical and likes to build things, very smart, very inquisitive and things. So we've been thinking about that because he's in preschool. And I say this because the preschool that we have, we love it. It's a bilingual preschool. So he's learning a, another language and it goes to first grade. But we've talked, of course, what happens with elementary school, very similar to you. Like, OK, once they get, you know, he has this school that focuses on the play and letting kids be creative and they learn a musician. And they learned an artist of the week. Like it's very it's structured, but also letting children be children at the age that there are. And he, he loves it. But there's a, a local school here and they call teachers guides and. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting approach. And I say that because it's just we're seeing more of these different ways of schooling because I don't think all parents can homeschool. So my husband and I have said, do we send them to private school or is it public school? Because I've been to not a private school, but a school that maybe had wealthier students and certain things. And I thought I was getting the better education. And truthfully, I didn't. And I've been in a school where it was maybe in a lower income neighborhood. And I actually had a great education. The teachers cared and they pushed us. So I've seen a little bit of both. So we've talked about that. And I say all that because I'm like, you said your middle son who didn't want to be bound. And I think there's something to that. And maybe we'll see the future of public schools. I don't know, because then we get into funding and there's certain things that I know we're going to get into you working for, I don't want to get this incorrect here, of school board. And maybe we will see some change. I don't know how soon, but I mean, look at that, that your children, they're all thriving because they all had an opportunity to work with what works for them. So one liked to play piano. So it calmed him, got him ready for the day. The other one was analytical. So he jumped right into that. So it allowed them to freely explore what they needed to explore and not be bound to the, you have to come in, you have to sit all day at a desk or do this. I mean, we don't even like to sit at a desk all day working a nine to five. So how do we expect little children to do that? Exactly. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of school districts that are trying to 
address that issue and they're trying to be more progressive because I know we have our local middle school and high school, but now we have a Delta program where the kids have been put into their education. The kids call teachers by the first name, which I'm not crazy about that because I, from that generation where you give them their respect, they're due, but they feel like it's more like a friend, like a partnership in their education and they're thriving. They're doing wonderful, especially the middle school. It's just not the traditional and some kids work better in non-traditional venues and other kids actually like structure. And I feel like that's the problem with, with school district because I only have five kids and I felt I was going crazy because I was trying to address each of their needs and I did my best. But when you have thousands of children in your school, that becomes a little hard to try to individualize it. But I think that they're trying their best. And I think that we are doing a fairly good job. Can we do better in the school district? Of course you can. There's always room for improvement. I think we should try to listen to some parents too. When they talk about their kids, they want to be engaged. Everybody says that the biggest expense in your life is your mortgage, your home. I don't think so. I think it's your kids. <laughs> Where you live, the jobs you take, all of these things revolves around your children. I mean, you you feel responsible for them, rightly so, because you decide to have them. And this is why when I had to quit my job, I said, because my kids are my greatest joy and I need to protect them. And so I had to do what I had to do. So it's your kids. And also, this is our last year of tuition payment for my one of my twins. <laughs> So my husband said, do you want to add up all the costs? I said, no, no way. You know, there's piano lesson, there's all these other lessons, and it's a big investment. It's so true. I never thought of it that way, but it's true. I mean, think of that. And again, I only have one of the sports, the after school and the this and the that. And correct, once you have that child, everything from health to doctors to everything then revolves around them. So that's so poignant and so true. So for all, for my listeners out there, if you're thinking of becoming a parent, we're definitely not trying to scare you in that aspect, but it is something to help to try and prepare for. Because I think the duty of a parent, mother, father, because I don't want to take away anything from fathers, especially the ones, you know, that really truly are there every step of the way as much as they can be. My husband, thankfully with his job and he was able to, every doctor's appointment, we were both always there. It just was what we just said from the beginning we wanted to do. So I definitely don't want to take away that from the fathers, but you know, it's something about raising a child and the task, the weight of that, that's something to say and to, to mentally get in that space on so many different aspects. And I had guilt a little bit of being a career mom and not being able to homeschool, which is why it was very important for us. And as he gets older to make sure we find a school to make sure he doesn't get bored and get into trouble. So tell me, how long did you homeschool for? Did you basically homeschool all through basically they graduated high school? I did, but not fully. I kind of cheated. And so when people talk about homeschool, we're not knowledgeable in every area of science or every area of music. And so we get help. Either people get some tutors or in my school district, we had this dual enrollment, which I thought was amazing. The first school district where I started homeschooling my kids in Pennsylvania, you are either homeschooler or you're a traditional student and you do not mix. Eventually, Pennsylvania changed that where you could mix in sport or extracurricular activities that you're not graded for. But as far as coming to the school for anything, no, you keep them separately. And they really didn't care what you did if you're not going to be part of the school district. 
And where I moved to later, which is the college school district, they had this dual enrollment thing that they allowed homeschoolers to take courses at the high school, the middle school, the elementary school, the band, anything. And I thought that was such a great idea for a lot of reasons. One is that although I had originally planned to homeschool my kids fully or until they wanted to go to school, I never heard of this dual enrollment thing. I didn't know if my husband got sick, we got divorced or whatever, where I was forced to return to work to support my kids, especially the little ones weren't used to a school setting. How would they perform in a school setting. So I felt that putting them in some of these dual enrollment classes was also to introduce them to a traditional school because you never know what could happen down the road. And so this is my idea of planning. And they loved some of the classes, other classes. I felt I would do a better job than the school. I loved it. I love chemistry. I was a chemistry major. I love biology. We did dissection together. My, my husband loved physics. You know, I love math. Some things that I felt like the kids, the school could actually do a better job than me. And you have to be honest. I mean, I can't do everything, you know, I sent them to school for that and other things I felt that they would do. So it was like the school district was really a partner. And I thought I got the best of both worlds because as a teacher, as a counselor of my kids, I was able to tell the school district where my kids belong, not the other way around. And even then there was an AP course that I felt my son should take. And I got a message in my, on my answering machine one day saying that, oh, your son is too young to take this course. So we took him out of this course. He already had one test and he already got a hundred on it. That was Michael, my middle son. And with putting him out of this course, I was so angry because they don't have a right to do that. And a lot of the teachers didn't understand this dual enrollment that they're not the one that dictate. So I, I went to talk to the teacher. The teacher said, no, it's the policy. I can't talk to you. So I said, I'm, I'm speaking to the principal. I'm going over her your head. And so I had a meeting with the principal, the two of us and the department head. And over the weekend, it was at that Monday, happened on a Friday. So over the weekend, I prepared all my notes. I looked up all these AP criterias and especially for AP classes, a lot of the minority students, the Hispanic and black students are not taking them. And they say that you should try make every effort to involve some of these minority students who take these courses. And here it is, my son wants to take this course and you're telling me no, because you made the decision that he's not mature enough. You don't know my son, how could you? And you're not allowed to because I'm the counselor, I'm the teacher for my son. So once I presented all this and then I said the maturity level, first of all, in high school, the maturity level is all across the board. I mean, you have some seniors that act more like freshmen. You have some freshmen that are more mature than some, you know? It's like that four years, there's so much growing that needs to occur that you don't know where one child is. My son was, I think he was an eighth grader or he might've been a ninth grader. And I told them, I understand if this AP course is for seniors that needs to graduate. I have no problems with that. I'm not gonna let my son or any of my kids take up a seat of a senior that needs to graduate. But that wasn't the case. The class was not full. And I said, I'm the responsible one. You know, you don't have that right to do that. I turned out to be right. My son took that course. He ended, he ended up getting an A and he got a five on the AP. For me, being able to direct where my kids, the courses they take and not leave it to some teachers and counselors because as wonderful as most of the teachers are, they have their biases too. They're looking at a black child, especially a black male, and they already have the assumption, oh, this kid is probably going to drop the average of the class, or this kid is not, you know, and that bothers me. And 
this is one of the reasons I ran for school board because some of our minority students are not doing well. And now that I had a chance to finish, my kids graduated, they did wonderful. I want to lend my voice to some of the people that are voiceless. And I want to be a role model to some of these students. We could be seen everywhere, not just in sports, but in education. Out of 660 teachers, we don't have any black teachers. We don't have any teachers of color, which is something that to me is very important. Studies have shown that that helps decrease the opportunity gap between students. And there was a white teacher, white female teacher that told me that I was really good in science, which changed my life a lot. But it was my first black teacher at Brooklyn Technical High School that told me that I was really smart and I was really good in math. And he told me that before the other teacher. So to feel seen, to feel that you have something to contribute, to feel that you're actually smart and somebody's acknowledging that, it made such a difference in my life. I mean, when your parents tell you different things, yeah, you know, but they're your parents. But when outsiders or teachers really believe in you, it, it just changes your life. Or if you don't have someone advocating, you were able to advocate for your children. So it sounds like to me, you wanted to take that to help advocate for the children who didn't have that whether it's because their parents have to work and they can't really be at the parent-teacher conferences. They can't step up and say, actually, no, X, Y, Z. And that's the sad part because to your point, yeah, I mean, we all have the conscious and the unconscious biases, 150%, which goes for having someone in your corner to be able to step up to either point that out because it could be well-intentioned that maybe she didn't mean it to be, but still the biases there or even to say, hey, ex, you know, let's try it this way. That's important that you were able to do that. So your children are in the dual enrollment. They they do well. I actually was on your website and I, I was reading up on your children. Oh my God, they're so cute and their stories. You must be so, so, so proud. Ladies, are you tired of feeling overworked and under-recognized for your impact at work? And are you curious about how to do the inner work to own your worth so you can feel confident making the bold asks, negotiating for more, and creating your ideal career? Ashley Perret, a previous guest, is a successful leadership and negotiation coach who is offering you the special opportunity to experience the power of private coaching with her. She will give you the tools necessary to grow your career in your own terms by being authentic in tough conversations, building bridges through negotiation, and trusting that no is not the end. Head over to www.ownyourworth.com to book an exclusive 30-minute private consultation. I'll let you have your your moment with with your little ones but or your big ones now. So now they go to high school or they're they're figuring out where they're going to go to college and I see there's Harvard and Dartmouth. What do you, what do you then do? What what is your next journey into? What was that transition like? What did you say? Okay, what's next for me, Carlene? Towards the end, when I talk about my illness, and it comes back twice, so I knew that I wasn't going to go back to being a doctor. I had always thought I would. I kept up with my medical journal. I kept up with my board certification. I had to take these exams every ten years, every year. Those journals. And then my husband would come home and tell me these different things. I would look them up, these different procedures, and I would try to keep active. And I started volunteering. And then we thought that my cancer came back and it was devastating. And for like several years, when my kids were little, I was involved in 
swim team. I was the president of the swim club. I was in the track team. I mean, I was always involved in my kids' education one way or the other and in the community. But once I got my diagnosis, especially when I had to quit certain things that I had started, quitting to me was never an option. I don't like being a quitter. Even if I fail at something, at least I know I finished it. And that's just my personality. And so when I had to quit different things that I started, the treasurer of this club or that club, I felt I was letting people down. For the first time I went through my cancer, I felt like I did it. I beat it. I knocked it out. I'm ready to take part in the world again. I'm stronger than before. It came back. The second time it came back was devastating. I, I, I was expecting to die. I had 11% five-year survival, 36 months to live. And that was devastating. I was acting like I was already dead. I didn't want to do anything. I was had bad headaches. Anyway, at some point I stopped the chemo and I got ready to die because I didn't like how I looked. I didn't like how I felt. I didn't like the fact that my kids couldn't talk to me. I didn't like the whole aura that I gave because it was such a depressing moment for everyone. And so once I stopped, the headaches stopped, I was starting to be happy again. And I said, you know what? I don't care for how long I'm going to live, but I'm going to make it my best life. If I live a day, a week, a month, I don't care, but I'm going to make it a happy one. And this is what I try to do. That's when I really started living again. But I noticed that even though I was doing things with my kids and we were going on trips and we were doing that, I was not going to get involved in the community because I knew that, okay, I got a month, I got a year, but next year is going to come back. The year after that is going to come back. Like I'm going to have to quit. I'm going to have to stop. And then eventually when it's been like five years and I'm still not dead, I said, you know, they could have gotten this wrong. I want to get back involved in the community because I love my community. You know, things, a lot of things have changed and not all for the better. But once my kids were older and I said, I'm tired of hibernating, there are things to be done in the community that I want to be a part of. And so I got this phone call that said, would you think of running for the school board? I never thought of it, but yeah, why not? Why don't I do it? And actually one of the superintendent when I would meet with him periodically about complaints I have about the school district or what they're doing or what they're not doing, he said, you know, you're one of these parents that I think would do well on the school board or PTA president or something, but you're the type of parents that instead of helping, you take your kids and you say, I'm just going to do this for my kids. You know, like in a way he was telling me that I'm selfish, you know, I'm just caring about my kids. And I felt bad. I really did when he told me this. Because I do believe in helping others, but my children are a priority to me. The other school district, I did complain a lot and nothing got done. And so how long do I keep complaining? It's like trying to move a mountain. Sometimes you can't or it'll move slightly. You know, by then my kids could graduate. I owe it to my kids first and foremost. Again, you're going to advocate for them. Exactly. The best I can. So I tell him. When I finish raise my kids, I'll think about it, but not really meaning it until I got that phone call. And I said, you know what? It's time for me to do what I had thought of doing years ago. Why not? And so that's why I decided to do that. So how long ago was it from when you were di actually diagnosed? How long has it really been? About eight years now. So you're in um, remission? Yes. 
I'm in remission. I still have to go yearly. My surveillance is decreasing each time. When I reached five years, the kids, we had like a little party and we went on a trip together and we toasted mom five years out. So that was beautiful. Wow. Okay. So that's eight years ago. That's that's the journey of that, the roller coaster journey of that. And then you get this call. What was that like? And then from you winning, what does that mean? What what are some of the responsibilities and how do you hope to impact your community now that now that you actually won and you're on the, the school board? Well, I hope to be like a a liaison. I'm on the communication to, um, committee because there's several committees. It's almost like when you know when you talk about the Senate or the Congress, and there's different committees that people are vying to be on. Some stronger than others. There's the Culture and Climate Committee. There's the Policy Committee. There's you could go to all of these different committees, but you're assigned to about two. And you kind of like have homework. I have like this whole policy thing. There's finance. There's you know because we raise taxes sometimes to meet the needs of the school districts. So there's so many different committees and to really understand the background of how a school district work was eye-opening. I kind of had an idea, but now that I'm actually on it, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. And this is all volunteer. You do not get paid. They say it should be about 20 hours of volunteer time. It's way more than that. It's way more than that. Especially if you're really going to do it the way I would imagine, because you you give off, like you say, you're not a quitter. So you're going to give 150%. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the favorite thing that I think that was one of your questions before about what do I do at night? It used to be to curl up with a book. Now I curl up with a big policy manual that I'm trying to, you know, a lot of my other friends that ran for local councilmen or things like that, they all get sworn in and January, actually the 3rd of January, the new mayor and everything else. The school board, we get sworn in in December. So we win our race in November and we attend our first school board meeting in December because a lot of the finance planning is up for renewal by the end of the year. We have to step right up. And so we had meetings to prepare us for our first board meeting before we were even sworn in. We just have to start this running, you know, like you hit the ground running straight exactly. into it. Exactly. Wow. So, so this is all it. fresh. This was like literally November and you're talking like this December. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so well, congratulations. Well, thank you. And it's it's amazing to see the full circleness of it, right? You start, you go to become an OBGYN and you go through the schooling of that. You come into the homeschooling journey and you're you're there with your children and now to in essence help your community on a larger scale. That's beautiful. So tell me before we get into my fun questions, I have two questions for you. One, let's talk about when you got the urge to write it and where that all came from. And then I'll have a follow-up question and then we can jump into my fun questions. Okay. I decided to write the book, Pressure Makes Diamond. And I titled it that because I feel like we all put pressures on ourselves. When you have five African-American kids that are extremely smart, Everybody assumes that you put so much pressure on them. So I was told over and over, oh, you're putting too much pressure on your kids. And it's like, you don't know my kids. You don't know what I do. How could you say that? I wanted to dispel that. But I think with five kids, overachievers, they put more pressure on themselves than needed to be, especially my youngest, because by then 
her twin, which is Joey and Jackie are the twins. He skipped a grade. He was like my little math genius. So he went to a lot of international math programs in Tunisia and then in Ireland. She was not my math genius. She was my social lovable person, but she felt pressured to compete with the others. So I feel like in our family, they put more pressure on themselves than I would have ever put on them. But then I also put pressure on myself to be the perfect mom, to be the perfect teacher, to be the perfect wife and doctor, you know? And so we wear, as women, as parents, we wear so many different hats that we expect to do them all perfectly. The pressure makes diamond is all the pressure we put on ourselves and each other and that society also press on us. Hopefully we become diamonds at the end. It's not all of us that could crack to this pressure. At some point we need to stop and we need to reevaluate that we're doing the best job we can. And once you realize that you're doing the best job you can, you could take a deep breath and go on because that's all you could do as human beings. We're not superhumans, you know? We could give as much as we can without breaking ourselves in the process. So anyway, that was the title of my book and it was From Homeschooling to the Ivy League. And I put the parenting story subtitle in it because I didn't want people to mistake that this was just a homeschooling book because it's not. Homeschooling is not done in a vacuum. We have a whole society. So basically it's a 20 year span of our lives. And in it, we had the death of Trayvon Martin, the murder, I should say. We had the Haiti earthquake that devastated me. We lost family members, distant relatives. So how could you wake up and start teaching like everything's okay? The Black Lives Matter movement was starting. So, so many different things that's incorporated in this journey. Because again, you need to kind of explain to your children what's going on, but you also have to take a step back and allow yourself to cry and allow yourself to be human and understand that homeschooling has its ups and downs because you don't have a substitute teacher. And also my illness, my week off, I did everything humanly possible to fight this, to believe that I'm still important in my kid's life. My week on chemo, I was out. I was devastated. I couldn't get up. And each week I kept saying to myself, okay, next week I'll be better. But each week I didn't, I got weaker. I lost my hair. I was bald. Basically this book is not just about homeschooling. Homeschooling is the backdrop, is the timeline that everything is built on, but it really tells the story of our journey of our family. And so this is why, of course I do say some of the techniques that I thought that I used that help the kids and some of the books that I use and I have an, an index in the back, an appendix in the back with things that I did and that I hope could help others. I love puzzles. I believe that puzzles really help you put things together, become analytic. You look at the colors, you look at the shape. You don't just try anything. The kids that look at the shape and the color and where it goes and do it. I've always had puzzles growing up because my parents always bought us puzzles. It was fairly cheap <laughs> and all six of us could do puzzles together. I know it's a family thing. It's something you could do as a family. It's a very great educational, inexpensive thing that everyone can do. And to, to 
to talk a little bit with your book um, because it sounds so interesting. And basically, yeah, is what it sounds like is the backdrop is homeschooling. But what's so poignant about it is that basically you're also taking us through the journey of these cultural things that are happening. You're a mom. So you're facing this. You're a black woman facing this now raising African-American children. So now you have to figure out how to navigate this. How are you going to have these conversations with your children as just being a mother and then dealing with everything else? It sounds fascinating and definitely something that I want to check out. And actually, let me ask you this. What would you say to a parent, let's say someone like myself who can't homeschool, what would you say is something that you would recommend in a high level to a parent who, let's say, doesn't have the resource to stay there, but things that can be brought in the home that are good educational things to do, whether it's like a puzzle or whatever that can aid with also their education. Okay. Well, we talked about the puzzle. Another thing that I like to do with my kids, and of course, when they were older, is a lot of dissections. The thing is that they need to understand like the anatomy of how things work. We had this, the human body, especially when I got sick and also their grandparents got sick, that we were able to talk about the human body, that it's not surreal. It like it actually exists. It's a living organism. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's living organism. So of course we started with regeneration because I love science a lot. So in the morning I would show them the different earthworms or starfish or things that we would dissect later on. But to get an understanding of it, understanding of regeneration, understanding of biology, you could bring science to life. And eventually we did botany. We did the different types of soil and how plants grow well in soil. So we had sand, then we had rocks, then we had dirt. And so they were able to see living things. So when kids could participate and see things, it makes so much sense to them because they see it and they see the seed growing and they see one seed growing better than others. And when we finish this experiment to see why roots are important or why stomatas are important in leaves because we put Vaseline on them, they couldn't open to breathe and the respiration that occurs in plants, what happens, it was amazing. They started saying, mom, what if we do it again? But this time we don't use water, we use soda. And they were making up their own experiments. When kids start questioning things, that is when real learning is starting. You're not dictating to them what they should do. They're formulating their own ideas. They're formulating hypothesis. They're questioning things. And to me, critical thinking is so essential that we don't have that anymore. So whenever you could involve kids in hands-on or things that they could see for themselves and question for themselves, that is key. Another thing that my daughter told me recently that really helped her and she loved that. And I've been telling that to people and I have that in the book. It's a resource about, I don't know, I'm blanking on it, but it was one of the book that you had to find out who the person is sitting next to the person with the red sweater and the person that's sitting next to the person with the turtleneck and you have to put X and Y, and then you find out exactly who A is and who B is and who C is. And from what I'm hearing, and it's a lot of critical thinking. It's a lot, a lot of, of critical thinking. Oh my God, it should be one of my favorite books. Figuring it out, a lot of problem solving. It's a lot of problem solving. It's kind of like a Sudoku board where three cannot be next to six and six cannot be next to nine. It's math. You know, like those riddles they used to have about you cross the river with three people, but you don't want the 
pig to eat the wolf and this. So how do you do that? You go back and forth. It's things like that that really helps kids think. It's not so much math related. It's just critical thinking that we're lacking. And once you could open a kid's mind to thinking and questioning, the rest is easy. It's so true, which is one of the things my husband and I struggle with and why there's so many things I'm trying to figure out because we have technology, which as beautiful as technology is and there's great things and yes, he can learn and there's ABC Mouse and certain things, but there's nothing like problem solving because that app isn't going to show you how to actually think for yourself. I know for me, when I was in corporate America and I had teams to manage and we were onboarding and hiring people, that's a skill I, I definitely have and I'm very proud to have is a figure outable skill and all of that problem solving, a lot of people don't have that. Yeah. Mind benders. Oh, mind benders. That's what it's called. I love those books. And they have from little kids to high school level. And then as we get older, they have a lot more to figure out who's who, who's sitting next to who. And my daughter says, mom, I love those books. They really made me think. And I was like, wow, I kind of fell on it accidentally and I liked it. And so I continued it with it looking back and when the kids tell you some of the things that really work, that really touch them, that really open their minds, it's so good to get recognition. Absolutely. But yeah, it's it's a skill that not not a lot of people have. And I know people like to call it the common sense. And I'm like, a lot of it is critical thinking, problem solving, and just kind of figuring it out because we always want to run to our cell phones and look where it's like, no, let's stop and use good old fashioned <laughs> critical thinking skills. Okay. So you as a parent, homeschool mom, author, and now publicly elected school board trustee, just speak to some of the values and beliefs that guide your life, learning and work. And why are these particular values meaningful to you? Okay. Well, one of the things I like saying is that when life gives you lemon, you squeeze the heck out of it. (laughs) And you have to, you know, there are going to be a lot of obstacles in your life. And I do believe in planning because even though plans don't work out, you also have a plan B. You know that this is where you want to go, but we know that not all plans work out, but at least have a plan. And when I talk about having a plan and having confidence, it doesn't mean that I'm always going to win, but at least I'm going to have the confidence to try. And in the past, like I, I say a lot of the things that my kids won, but their kids, they lost a lot too. But to have that confidence to get back up and continue, and try again. To me, that's where the real guts lie. And I tell my kids, it's okay to fail just as long as you get back up. And so I think that confidence is so important to teach your kids. And that's another thing. When they look at the kids that are quote successful and the ones that aren't, the number one thing is confidence that these kids have. I agree. And I think that is something that definitely needs to be taught in the home, but also to your point, who they're surrounded with to then build that confidence. Because, you know, as they say, you could hear 20 nice things about you, but all it, all it takes is one negative thing. And then that stays with you. Right. So to be really impactful with our, with our words in that aspect. Okay. So now let's get in a little bit with you. So what do you do to relax and unwind for the day? And do you have, a, and how has your routine changed? Do you still get up early in the morning? What does that look like for you? I still get up in the morning because my husband still goes to work. He still goes out the door. So we try to have coffee together. He has been making me coffee since we got married and he would bring it to my bed. If I'm still in bed, he would bring it to my bedside and he would leave for the day. So sometimes when I'm without him or I'm at a hotel, I'm looking for my coffee. I'm thinking, oh shoot, he's not here. 
<laughs> he has foiled me in that way. But I'm in the writer's network, especially after I wrote my book. Once I wrote it, I said, okay, now what do I do? So I joined a net writer's network to, to bond with the other writers, local writers. And because of COVID, we kind of fell apart, but I've taken over managing the website. And so every month, I have book clubs, different book clubs, and I have reviews on them, but I have people give like one or two minute reviews on the different books. I belong to like five different book clubs, Powerful Voices Book Club, which is the one I started with my family. And I started that because I want to keep in touch with my kids. And so my kids and my family makes up the majority of that book and they have recommendations. We do it usually in this, we started March to September because by the time school starts again and everything else, it's hard to get everybody on the same page. I have an inspirational book club where I meet with these 80 plus year old women. They are amazing. And what I like about that book club, I could read the same book with other groups of people, but yet what they glean from it is so different because they live some of these lives that's mentioned in those books. And it's so good to get different perspective. And I think one thing about reading books is that it's good to discuss with people to get their insights. This is why I love a lot of book clubs. And so on my Nidney Valley Writers Network website that I have, I give book recommendation or I have people that say that. So that's one of the things that I do. And I like try to put it out the first of every month. So I like doing that. My son has helped me a lot. My son, that's MIT computer, because he helps me embed some of these videos into my website. So that has been good. And I, I try to exercise at least every other day. I try to go to the gym. That's important. I like to start out my day feeling I did something healthy. I watch what I eat because of the chemo and everything else. I have to be careful with what I eat. And I read. And now I read a lot of policies. I read a lot of finance. I want to get up to date. I want to give 100% of myself on the school board. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. And I talk about my book. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You can tell the passion that comes off with the education and the reading. And the fundamental thing is reading is so key from an early age to instill that. It radiates off of you as well. So that's awesome. Okay, let's go into my quote unquote speed round. Because you're in so many book clubs and you love to read, do you have a favorite book? Can you name a favorite book? I don't. You know what? And then when you tell me a favorite book, I'm going to have to say, is it nonfiction? Is it science fiction? Is it? I'll rephrase that and say, because of the podcast, is there maybe a book, a book or two that you would like to recommend that you think for my listeners in any aspect, whether it's something educational, um, something for parents, is there a book you'd like to recommend then? David McCulley, I use a lot of his books. He does things like how things work. And when we were doing the castle and the step-by-step, step, and then we built our own castle using his book. So he has a lot of different books and the drawings are so beautiful. He has a few of them but his drawings are great. We use a lot of his books when I was teaching our kids. David Bly is one of my favorite nonfiction writer. He wrote on Fergalit Douglas, which that was one of the books that I used at our book club. That was really good. I like reading a lot of books. Well, this for moms, a lot of different authors from different countries. And one of them, of course, is Haitian. Edwidge Dadakot has written a lot of different books based on Haiti. And some of them are very sad to get through and not all the time do I like to read sad books I have to be in the mood for it because they could be very draining and The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead 
he just wrote a very draining. He's the one, the one that wrote the Underground Railroad too. And I didn't read that one because that was a little bit too much for me at that time with the whole George Floyd movement. And so I read a lot of those kinds of books, but then I had to stop and just read kind of a funny story book. And so the Inspirational Book Club, we do read a lot of these hypothetical and sometimes I'm not in the mood for it. like everything happens just perfectly like one of these rom-com stuff you know and I think we read like the Christmas Inn and that was like so it everything was anticipated you knew what how we would end but you know what I think in this moment with COVID and the trauma that's upsetting people you kind of want to have something predictable. You kind of want to have a happy ending. You know, there's a few of the Batman movies that are coming out and my kids were telling me, oh, it's really dark. I said, no, I don't want dark superhero movies. I want them to get the villain and win and we have superheroes again. I don't want dark superheroes. I want something to be happy about. So yeah, so these are some of the ones I could think of on top of my head. The Phantom Tollbooth. That was a kid's book, but my kids love that book. And I think when we were talking about with my kids, what are some of the books that you guys like when we were reading as, you know, and that's something that my daughter had mentioned, my oldest. And for Christmas, her fiance now gave her the book and she was so happy. So that's why it's in my head right now, because that was such a funny book that the kids liked. And I gave away some of my books that I use for my kids, especially to help them read. And I went to one of my friend's house and it was, it was like on the floor and people were like stepping on it. I, I was so angry that I don't do that anymore unless it's for my kids or whatever. Those are so precious memories. Each book I could tell you, I remember reading this with my kids or A Wrinkle in Time or The Other Side of the Mountains or all of these really great books that. I cherish because those are some special times with my kids. So I do, I could tell you some of my favorite fiction books, some of my favorite nonfiction books, and it changes from year to year because as I read more newer books, then those are the ones I remember. Then I forget some of the classics, you know, The Bluest Eyes, Toni Morrison, and- The classics. The classics. And you can't get away from the classics. The classics are so beautiful and it makes good conversation. That's awesome. Who makes up your village? My family. My family is my strength. My immediate family with my kids and my family with my parents and my brothers and sisters. And during this COVID time, I'm so worried about my mom. My mom lives with my brother. He's taking care of my mom in New York because my father's 93 and he's living in Florida and he has asthma. So he doesn't like the cold and he can't take care of my mom because she's had three strokes. We all kind of help. And so once my book was published, they're like my biggest fan. Oh, I'm going to make sure Oprah gets this and (laughs) Tyler Perry gets it. And they're all excited and happy for me. And I think family is so important. Our village, it takes a village. It is so so true and you're so lucky to have all your family around with you one of my sisters in new york the other one is in florida and i tell my sister why did we all think it was a good idea to pick up and move like why did we do that because we're so far away so for this christmas we all kind of zoomed in together with our kids and it was so beautiful and so yeah my village is definitely my siblings and my kids and my husband that's wonderful what is your superpower Mm, that's a good one. I think I'm not afraid to try new things. Now, I'm not going to be 
dumb about it. You know, like I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be realistic about it, but I'm not afraid. And again, I don't think failure is a failure if you don't win in the typical sense of the word. I think by not trying, you've already failed. You already lost yourself, you know, your ambition, you know, and I'm not per se an ambitious person, but I'm not going to let opportunity pass me by. And I thought I lost my school board race. Actually by 1130, I was losing. <laughs> and I, my kids, we were all on the phone and I said, okay, you guys, mom tried her best. We gave it a best shot and I lost. So I'm going to bed, sleep it off and I'll talk to you in the morning. And at midnight, they all kept calling me, mom, mom, you won, you won. I got texts and everything else. The mail-in ballots put me over like 4,000 points. Yeah, it did. the mail-in ballots pushed me over. And again, I told the kids that I would have felt bad had I lost, but I would have felt worse if I didn't run. And I think there is some truth to that. It's not just saying it to make you feel better. I think it's true. You know, you there's so many people that go through life said, you know what, I wish I did this. I never, you know, and I think that these regrets is what in the long run, that's how you look at your life, the things that you didn't do. For sure. Oh, that's so poignant. I love that. If you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? My toddler years of my kids. <laughs> oh, oh God. Yes. I miss those so much. And Jackie loves for Christmas. She likes our videos. So she would pick one of these videos and those baby videos. It was so funny. We were in the beach one time and um, in the pool and my kids all jumped on my husband's back. And this other kid jumped on my husband's back also. And Jackie's trying to push him off. Like, that's not your daddy. That's my daddy. And so we were all laughing and everything. And so when we went to bed that night, I told my husband, I don't know if I could watch these baby videos. It's so sad. You know, I miss it. It went by so fast. And he told me, you're my opposite. I love watching it because sometimes I'm thinking, did we really have that much fun with our kids? Did we really do that? And when I see these videos, I'm thinking, yes, we made them happy. We, we gave them good life. And that's a beautiful way of looking at it, right? To look at, yes, there's something to to grieve that and to miss that. And oh, like I said, I have a four-year-old, so it gets me emotional thinking about that because I feel like time is just moving so fast. And like I said, he's four going on 15. I'm like, who is this little grown man that I'm having these grown-up conversations with? Like what? But there is something I'm sure point beautiful about revisiting that and be like, oh, we did give them a beautiful life and you know, the happy memories. That's beautiful. If you could travel anywhere in the world right now, where would it be to? Ah, this is difficult. I would love to go to Haiti. I really, mm. I miss that my country. I, even though I left when I was two in my high school years, my brother had gone back to help out and he lived there and my oh, engineer wow. brother. And so during summer times, I would go and stay with him. And then when I did one of my residency, we could go anywhere in the country. I went to Nicaragua, then I went to Haiti for a month, and I worked in the hospital. And it was really good. I mean, the education there, the rounds that I made, it, we had a lot. And to now that half of the stuff been destroyed, it's really sad. So I think I would like to go back to how it used to be before all the earthquake, before all the kidnappings, before all of that. And it's, it's so sad. But so, you know, I, I'm hoping that my country, things get turned around at some point, but that's still, you know, a sad part for me. No one could really believe when I described the country that I knew 
how beautiful it was and how beautiful I'm hoping that it could still be one day. Yeah, and hopefully, um, God willing, one day it will be. Tell me how proud of your babies. Tell me quickly, what were they at in their life? I see Meet the Kids. Oh my God, amazing. MIT and Harvard and oh, please have have your little bragging moments of your babies who are now young, beautiful adults because they are Thank such you. good looking children. Thank you. Well, my oldest, Danielle, is engaged. She's getting married in 2023. And she's now doing her second year of medical school at UPenn. So that's in Pennsylvania. That's not too far from us. Michael, he was working for, he's my MIT guy, my musical guy. He wrote a piece. If somebody goes on my website and when I say meet the kids and I have some of his composition that he copyrighted, but I said, Michael, I need a theme song for my book. And he wrote this beautiful piece for me and he did it like in a week. I was so impressed. Anyway, he played it for me recently. When he plays the piano, I just melt. Anyway, so he was in DC working with the firm with computers and he recently left that to now he's at Carnegie Mellon and he's doing a PhD in AI. Nicholas, it's so funny. He went to Dartmouth and Joey went to Harvard. And Joey's the one that got skipped and him and Nicholas, they had some sibling rivalry, let's just say, and the book highlights that. And so they graduated together and they both ended up at Stanford. They're roommates at Stanford. Yes. Wow. (laughs) What are they majoring in or what's their... Joey's getting his PhD in economics. He's my math person. And Nicholas is my creative person that used to love Legos and building. So he was working with VR, virtual reality. And undergrad, he worked with different software companies creating creating computer games and computer and coding and stuff like that. So he's working on his master's for that. And Jackie is my- Last but not least, Jackie. Last but not least, she is finishing up her last spring semester at Harvard. And she majored in psychology, minor in economics, and she does stand-up comic. <laughs> and she sent me a few of them. It's so funny. My kids have different personalities. They have different things that they like. They're so unique in what they pursue in life, which is so great because you don't want a carbon copy of you. You want them to find where they fit in life. And they have, and they they seem pretty happy and well-adjusted. And you, as a parent, you can't ask for anything more than that. Well-adjusted adults. Oh my God, that is just beautiful and a testament to you, your husband, but definitely, obviously, all of the dedication, right? And the time and all the energy and everything spent to to homeschool them and everything. So that's that's just, I'm blown away. That's amazing. And God bless them on all of their journeys into what they're doing. Any other final thoughts to the podcast world? It doesn't take much to give people compliment and make them happy. And I learned that. And it's people say that in passing, but when my oldest daughter was here with me the other day, she was telling me how she was on the phone with someone. She was trying to arrange her banking or whatever. And then at the end of the conversation, she says, thank you. You've been such a great help. And I hope you have a wonderful day. And he said, you know, you're the first person that have ever told me this on one of these phone calls. Because of you, I will have a wonderful day. And then she says, mom, it doesn't take much to make people happy. And with this COVID, with this trauma, with this sense of depression that everybody's going through, if I could just say a nice word to someone that really actually helped me 
why shouldn't I? And I said, wow. And then I was talking to my husband about it. And he says, well, that's because they're happy kids and they're lucky kids. Not everybody have that same path, that same fortunate you know, reality. And I said, that's even more for the ones of us that do to help make the lives of those that don't. And so after that conversation with her, I really try to brighten somebody's day any way that I can. It's so true because you never know what somebody's going through and at the bright side of things or not even or the other side of things that you might be in a customer service call and thinking whatever, but you have no idea. So that's that's awesome to leave with. Dr. Crevacore, it's been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing your journey. I will be checking out that book. Good luck with the school board and making your mark there. And yeah, it's just been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you too. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me this week on the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, NGC Consulting, where you can find them at NicoleGConsulting.com. For more motherhood resources, check out TheMotherhoodVillage.com. Make sure to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss an episode. And if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or recommendation to a friend works too. And join us next time for an another amazing conversation. Continued blessings to you all for love and light.